0: I want to invite you today to find your place in a, in a small book that closes out the Old Testament. It's the last one that you'll find right before the Gospels pick up in Matthew. If you open your Bible, not quite to the middle, but the top two-thirds, you'll find Malachi. Now, for a long time, I, I didn't know who this guy Malarkey was that the preacher was talking about, or Malachi. I, I didn't understand it, and then I realized later on in my development how to pronounce his name properly, but Malachi. Now Malachi often is a book that you'll hear a pastor share and bring a message from the word about Malachi 3.10 where it talks about bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that the cupboard may be full and test me in this and see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out God's blessing upon you and you will be able to handle it. Now I've heard that verse a few times, right? I've probably even preached it a time or two in the past, but man there's so much more going on in this book of Malachi that I'm going to share with you over the next several weeks. We're going to work our way through methodically the book of Malachi, and we're going to come to an understanding of what it was that the messenger of God, the prophet of God, this minor prophet, and why was he sharing these four short chapters with the nation of Israel and those who were leading around 552 B.C., somewhere around that time frame, around the 6th century B.C., Malachi. Now, it's interesting who Malachi is. The very word Malachi, the name, when you look at the etymology, the root of it, it means my messenger. Malachi is bringing a message from God as a minor prophet where God spoke to him and said, Go to the people, and I want you to give them a message so that they would understand what's going on in their context, in their culture, for their time, but for timelessness of true worship of who Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty, is. Now, I want to share with you a picture as we get to Malachi, and you're finding your place there in chapter 1. Now, y'all, I love a good bargain. How about y'all? Y'all are like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I know y'all Baptist, right? We all about some scratch and dent. We love us some dent and ding sales so we can save a few pennies, and it'll work just as good if it's scratched. Let someone else wear the new off of it, and I'll get it at a reduced price, and it'll last for a while, right? That's kind of the mentality that we have. If we can save a penny here or there, pitch a penny there or there, we're good, but you know, we just sang this song, Great is Our Lord. And Malachi is going to bring a message here that we're going to begin with. And we're going to look at this issue. What happens when we apply a scr- scratch and dent mentality to how we worship God? Where okay is good enough that we give to God? I'm going to share with you why my messenger Malachi is giving Israel an understanding of what was going on because they had adopted beyond just a scratch and dent mentality that whatever we brought to the offering of the Lord was okay. Um, I'm going to share with you a few principles that we can take away from this that we can look at and I want to anchor it here if you will on out Malachi chapter 1 in verse 10. This is probably the most pointed point of the first chapter. It hits me to the soul when I read this and understand what was going on when God says the following words. If you're there, Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, say amen. Here's what the Word of God says. He says, on that day were one among you who would shut on, excuse me, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So Father, we thank you as we approach this difficult passage that you gave to Malachi to share with the nation of Israel. Father, we pray that we would understand the the gravity of the text in verses 1 through 14 today as you would press upon our heart a deeper understanding that you desire nothing but your very best. That you've given nothing but the very best. And Father, the least we can do is nothing than our very best. So Father, help us to understand what you'd say to us during this time. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now I want to share with you as we get into this message, number one, uh, this is a difficult message. This whole chapter six messages I'm going to bring to you are extremely applicable, I think, in the life of our church and in the life of today's context and how we view what it means to be part of the body of Christ and what does God really expect out of us I think often in our view of the New Testament, we are very casual with the fact that it's by grace we are saved. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest no man shall boast. And we often throw the baby out with the bathwater when we view the Old Testament and say, we don't have to do none of that stuff because we're saved by grace. God doesn't care anymore. Well, we're going to use Malachi And we're going to look in and examine the scriptures to see what does it really look like? What is God really saying for us today as the New Testament church who are saved by Christ Jesus, by Christ and Christ alone? How do we apply this to an understanding that marries with the very thing that Jesus said? I came not to abolish the law, but so that the law may be fulfilled. How do we marry the two of these together, Old Testament with New Testament faith? I'm going to give you some neat some application for recognizing our need for a renewed commitment to God. How do we do that? Number one, let's start in verses 1 through 5. Let's read together there in the Scriptures. Verses 1 through 5, picking up in Malachi chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? tough perspective. Let me share with you a few things that are going on in verses one through five here. You see, there's a covenant with a king that we serve. And there was a covenant that God had given in the Old Testament. A covenant means a legal binding contract in which we fall under, given by someone who is in a position of authority to give something to someone else who has to meet certain stipulations in order to uphold the covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were specific things that God told Abraham If you, my people, will be blessed, if you will be faithful, I will bless you, you will be the father of many nations, plural. There was a covenant that God entered into with Abraham. There was a Noahic covenant that God entered into with Noah. And in in Genesis, we see that Noah was promised that God would never again flood the earth and kill it, for he saw the heart of man was truly wicked. There was a Noahic covenant. Then we get to a Davidic covenant with King David, where God promises to David that the throne would never leave the lineage of David. And we see David from the tribe of Judah, and we see Jesus also from the tribe of Judah, the king of all kings. In the New Testament, we have a new covenant under the blood of Jesus that we're going to participate today as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper and we remember this from what Jesus told us, this ordinance that we practice in the body of Christ today, in the Baptist body, and in all kinds of different Christian-believing denominations when we participate in the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of the covenant that by the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, we now enter into a solemn relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, there's a covenant with the king, and it begins, number one, with love. In verse 2, what Malachi is sharing with them and what God is proclaiming to him, he says, how have I loved you? I have loved you, says the Lord. And his very people are questioning, but how have you loved us? And God begins to explain through Malachi, if we dig in deeply to this text, it leads us to an understanding that Israel was a chosen people. Israel was a chosen race that God specifically called them out and and singled out to love them as his people. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 16, I'm going to read it briefly for you to give you an understanding of not only the covenant that Israel had, but the covenant we now share through the blood of Jesus with Israel as we were grafted in To the nation of Israel. Paul would write this to the church in Rome in Romans 9, 16 through 6 through 16. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are the children of Abraham because of his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. You see, this covenant we have with the king and this covenant that we have through Jesus Christ allows us to be children of God. He would go on to explain in verse 9, for this is what the promise said about this time next year will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's... God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls. She was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You see, we have a covenant of love with the Lord God Almighty, who gave his only Son on the cross of Calvary, so that we may confess our sin and be saved by the blood of Jesus. And often I think that covenant grows old. It's, one, it's a wonderful reminder for those of us that are married together with a partner, whether it's husband, wife, wife, husband. Isn't it funny that we kind of wear our covenant, don't we? We've got it on our hand. Whoop! wrong hand. That hand, right? That's my Harley ring. Sorry, that's the other one. Right? So on this hand, we have a band on it, don't we? And it serves as a reminder. Now, the band itself... Doesn't prohibit or inhibit me to do one thing or another, but it's there to serve as a reminder for me of this covenant that I made with my beautiful bride that we will love one another till the good days and the bad days are over, right? Well, folks, the Word of God reminds us of the covenant that He gave to you and I through the blood of Jesus. There's a covenant, however, with requirements. And we see that here that God is speaking through Malachi to tell the people this wicked country, this wicked nation would have to return to righteousness. And even if they tried to rebuild in their wicked state, God would come and he would destroy what was going on. Edom represented the wicked nature of unrighteousness. Edom, through verses 3 and 4, represented the defiant nature of man that we will rebuild ourselves even if the God destroys it and tears it down. We're going to build it back. Edom represents the righteous judgment of God against wickedness. But there's a reminder that comes with this covenant as well in verse 5. Notice God says, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What is he talking about? He's talking about this aspect of the righteous requirement those who are his people have to live righteously, and that God will destroy unrighteousness or wickedness. So there's a covenant requirement and the covenant reminder in verse 5. I want to share with you what the psalmist says about this. The psalm reminds us in Psalm thirty-seven, thirty-four to wait for the Lord and to keep His way. Now, surely we love the Psalms. Surely we go to them often, either in our quiet time daily or throughout the year, we'll read a certain selection of the books of the Psalms or we'll bring comfort from the Psalms. The 23rd Psalm I often share at funerals when family members have departed and graduated and gone on to be with the Lord or when they've, they've uh, failed a grade and they've gone and dropped down below. Amen. This 23rd Psalm brings comfort. Well, here's what the 23rd Psalm says. Wait for the Lord and keep His way and he will exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off that's the promise that we have as God's people there's a covenant that's being renewed over and over with us through the blood of Jesus Christ that he will not forsake the covenant that we have with the king and the wickedness that we see going on in our world will absolutely give an account one day now that's never comfortable saying when we share that in a church setting, it doesn't really attract a lot of people to come and to hear what's going on. But the truth is the truth, and what the covenant God gives us. But secondly, I want to share with you that there's contempt in the king's court. Now, most of you, if you watch any kind of legal proceeding or you've been in a courtroom and you hear someone get up and start murmuring things they ought not to to your honor, to the judge as he's taking the bench or she's taking the bench to adjudicate, and all of a sudden the judge will slam their gavel down and fine you with contempt of court 30 days in the jail or some fine or some expense. Folks, we have some contempt going on here in verses 6 through 9 that God is leading us to through Malachi. If you will, look with me in verses 6 through 9 in your scripture. Picking up in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O oh, priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, we have how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show you favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. See, what was going on here is they were violating some, some fundamental principles that they had been taught as they were growing up in their faith, in the understanding of who they were in this relationship and covenant with God, they began to bring contempt into the king's court, if you will, by doing some things they shouldn't. Let me give you three observations very quickly. Number one, there was a void of honorable worship amongst them. It wasn't just the fact of worship, but it was the fact of honorable worship, of what they were supposed to be doing from their heart. Here they were starting to bring polluted offerings to the Lord. They weren't bringing their best in what the law described as what they needed to. Let me share with you what was going on in the honorable worship. Now, many of us get wrapped up around this issue of being under grace, no longer under the law, so all the law is in the trash can. We don't have to worry about any of that. Well, that's not a a biblical accurate way of viewing the Old Testament and New Testament together. I would often share when I'm talking about the offerings and tithing and other things, which I preach on very little in this church. But we can see that the true element of giving through our tithes and through our offerings and sacrificing to the Lord, did you know that it existed long before the Levitical priesthood was given the law about tithing? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and verses 3 and 6. And here's what we see going on. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And also Abel brought his firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And the rest of the story goes on. You may be familiar with it, how Cain slew Abel over this jealousy over whose offering was acceptable and whose wasn't. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we see clearly an understanding that there was supposed to be in the Ten Commandments and the teachings that God gave to Moses, the Decalogue, if you will, an understanding of how the relationship was with a child to their parent. In Exodus 20, 12, he says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And here Malachi is confronted with this very issue that God tells him to proclaim to the people, a son honors his father and in a servant his master. If then I am your father, where is my honor? You see, honor in our worship had gone away in Malachi's day and God was calling the people out on it. They were bringing polluted offerings, if you will. Look in verse 7 with me. He clarifies it when they want to say, how have we despised your name? You ever have a kid do that when you know they did something wrong? And you go to talk to them about it. You know you told them a hundred times how to do it right, and and then you go and tell them about the clothes they left in the laundry mat in the in the washer, and they didn't put it in the dryer. And they're like, "But I thought I I thought I was doing it right." In reality, they knew they weren't doing it right. Right. So we throw them on the floor, and we just do our laundry, and they come back to it later. Right. I'm joking but they were bringing polluted offerings. Here's what Leviticus 22:21 says about how we were supposed to when the law was instituted, what the nation of Israel understood clearly as a commandment from the Lord about the offerings they bring. It says the following: And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. I'm glad I'm not a goat farmer, right? I don't have any livestock, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, folks, if we applied that in our context today, that would mean whatever offering in our society that we have a monetary value of worth, when we give it to God, it is to be pure and holy and righteous, not tainted. There shall be no blemish in it. I remember getting a phone call one day from a business in 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 a town. I'll just leave it that way. And this business was not of good reputation. The type of activity they were doing was probably of ill repute from a biblical perspective. But they needed a 501c3 nonprofit organization to be their co-sponsor in order to get the permits to do it. And here's what the gentleman says to me on the telephone. Well, you know, pastor, if you agree to support this with us, We'll give you 10% of the revenue from the business if you'll just sign on and approve it. It could be a lot of money, Pastor, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And I thought to myself, you've got to be out your mind. You don't know me very well, do you? But that's what he wanted to do. He said, I'll give you some money, and then you can give that to God, and, and it's all good, right? And I saw this very verse, there shall be no blemish in it. We're not going to take the devil's money to do the Lord's work. Because what he wanted to do was profit and gain for himself. Much like what Israel is doing here. They're bringing the worst of their offerings. They're bringing their blemished, their broken, their bruised, their battered, their skinny, their scrawny, their bug-infested, nasty offerings before. How do we know it's that way? He confronts them on it. Not only was there a void of honorable worship, but there was also a polluted offering, but there was a deficit of reverence and blessing that was going on. Look with me in verse 8. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? Let me translate that in today's world. When you bring non-honorable worship to the house of the Lord, is that not also evil? When you give of your leftovers instead of, of your best, is that not evil? When you don't have time for God's house and God's work, but we can go on vacations and other things around the world, but we don't have time to focus on missions and sharing the gospel. Put it in modern context. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? And here's what he says. Check out the next sentence. Because even Israel understood this. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. God kind of calls him out on it right there on the spot. You won't give that scrawny offering of lamb to your friend, your neighbor, or the governor, but you're going to bring it to me? Why don't you just go ahead and keep it, because I don't need it. By the way, just a reminder, God doesn't need us to be God. God doesn't need you and I to reveal his glory. But what a blessing it is that God chooses to allow you and I to experience his love and his blessing. God allows us, and we don't like that in our culture and our society today. Nobody allows me nothing. I'm an American. I have a right Well, the reality of it is, no, God created you and I for His purpose. And the sole prime reason was for us to worship and reverence for Him. The highest thing we could ever aspire to be. A deficit of reverence and blessing. Let me share with you what Jesus would say about this issue in Luke 6, 46 and 49. He says the following, He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do and not do what I tell you. I mean, this is Jesus. This is God incarnate, Emmanuel, flesh that dwelt amongst us, left the throne room of heaven to come down here and to be in our presence, to walk with us, stinky, smelly, difficult, stubborn people, to give his life as a ransom for many. And now he's talking to his disciples He's talking to those who claim to be followers. He's talking to Israel and to the Pharisees, to the Gentiles, to all that are listening. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the streams broke against that that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. You see, I think we are in an age and a culture and a time right now where Malachi is speaking to us again. Reminding us of this great deficit of reverence that we have towards the things of God. That we flippantly say, well I don't have to go to church, the nature is my church. I've heard that recently. I worship God in the tree stand, on the lake, in the RV, at the hotel. I can worship God anywhere. Well folks, God has prescribed for you and I as the church, the body of Christ, to gather and to worship Hebrews 10, 23, and 24 remind us, Forsake not gathering amongst yourself as many are in the habit of doing, but all the more as the day draws near. We're to gather, we're to be part of the body of Christ. Do you know the very word ekklesia means assembly? Now many think that ekklesia means the word church in the original language, and I think I've already shared that with you before. That's not where we get our word church from. It actually comes from karyakos. Kirsch, which means Lord in German, Alamon, the word kirsch became well used. And kirsch was translated into our English word church. When we gather together as the ecclesia, the assembly of God, we gather together to have reverence and worship and to be blessed by God and to be a blessing to God and to be a blessing to others. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Do not what I tell you. Contempt in the king's court. Jesus is saying. He knew the heart of man and the challenges that we would have. But unfortunately, it gets even worse. Turn with me and look in verse 10. We started this passage off with our anchor text. And I want to share it with you again now. And we'll examine it just a little bit. On that, excuse me. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you says the lord of hosts and i will not accept an offering from your hand see it's one thing for us to give something to god it's another thing for god to accept what we've given we can give it doesn't necessarily mean god's accepted it god knows the reality of what's going on point number three there's a danger of a cold castle there's a danger If you've ever been around Europe and you've gotten to go some castles, maybe built more, some other things here in the United States, if you ever walk into one that hasn't been heated well, you can feel the damp draftiness, the cold, and the wet, especially in the winter months. There's a danger that goes on in a cold castle. Let me share an image with you. This image is becoming more and more common around the United States. I deal with different things with church revitalization and helping churches with facilities and others. And more and more, I'm helping with conversations around properties that are for sale that were once a vibrant and thriving church. But for some reason, don't know what that could be, the Spirit of God has left that place and it's become a supermarket, a gas station, a book club, a gymnasium. I once passed a church that closed down not too long ago and on the sign it had been turned into a fitness club and I thought that was kind of fitting we can't get spiritually healthy but now we're going to try to get physically healthy that probably won't work too I went by it again and the sign said come join us we're growing I thought to myself too bad the church wasn't growing too but your fitness club can grow In what was supposed to be a house of worship for God's people it's not growing but the gym membership is and here's what it looks like you let it go long enough in any church Any church, doesn't matter what church it is. Doesn't matter what vibrancy your past had. Babe Ruth says it this way. You don't win games today with home runs you hit yesterday. Think about that for a minute. Too often, our laurels and what we've done in the past carries us but so far for the future. When I heard Babe Ruth say that statement, you don't win games today with home runs you hit yesterday. What a truth and what causes churches like this to just all of a sudden begin to decay and fall apart. Folks, that was the condition that Malachi is talking about here, the nation of Israel, spiritually had a deficit. According to the Barner Research Firm, there are more than 300,000 Protestant congregations in the United States. The president of this firm, by the name of Kinnaman, predicted that if it it applies to Protestant churches only, about 60,000 would close in the next 18 months. This is recent, y'all. Of the 3, 300,000 Protestant churches applying this data, now, George Barna is a research firm that does this kind of analytical work. They're well-known, well-respected, and their numbers being, being accurate. But Kinneman, the president of this corporation, says that in the next 18 months, we expect 60,000 churches will close their doors across North America in the next 18 months. What's, what's the prediction you asked? The, fi- the financial struggle that these churches are encountering, according to Kinneman, was part of the reason behind his estimate that one in five churches will close in the next 18 months. He said the prediction was based on data about two and a half months ago, taken in July, and he thinks it's even more likely to see that to be the case today. Tom Rainer, you may be familiar with his name, former president of Lifeway Christian Resources, wrote the following. He estimates there's a range between 5,000 and 10,000 10, churches closing each year in America. Five to 10,000 churches closing each year in America. Folks, you don't win games today with home runs we hit yesterday. The work of the Lord is an ever-evolving, ever-changing, ever, evolving, ever, changing, ever Constant demand of us doing for him out of love and gratitude for what he has done. And we've got to figure out how do we do this. Isaiah 113 says the following: He says, Bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure the iniquity and the solemn assembly any longer. I'd say the house was worn down pretty good in Isaiah's day and Malachi's day and in many of our churches today by those very statistics that are recent. So what do we do? What do we do going forward? How do we as the body of Christ, how do we do as church members today, how do we as the baseball players that are on the field playing in today's game, how do we get prepared to hit home runs? Let me share with you number one. How do you start your fire? Number one, you got to gather the, tinder, the tinder, Right? Everybody knows this. Boy Scout knows this. Right? My son, Widget Man, MacGyver, you pick a pocket, and there's something to start a fire, right, that he's got with him. He's prepared all the time. Always be prepared, Boy Scout motto. And he carries around this little bottle, and inside of it, some dryer lint and some matchsticks and a little piece of wax. And, and all of a sudden, he could spark a flight, but he knew that getting the tinder, something that was ready to catch fire, was absolutely important. Henry Blackaby would say this find who's moving with God and join them. Well, pastor, I'm just wanting to know what the will of God is for my life, and I just, I just want to know, what, what could I do? Start serving somewhere. That's the starting point. That's the kinder that gets your fire lighted. Start serving God, and God will make His will where you fit best, absolutely, positively clear to you. But here's the other issue. If you're not starting with a relationship with Christ, and you don't have salvation to begin with, then your wood's wet. It doesn't matter what kind of spark you're going to get to it. It won't catch fire until Jesus is the center of your life. Until there's been a day in your life where you've confessed Jesus as Lord, you know you've been forgiven of your sin, and you've entered into a lifelong relationship of being a disciple, a follower of Christ, and adherent to His teachings and commands, that's what disciple implies. Until that happens... Your tender will never light. Impossible. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. And our call to salvation is the first part of how do we keep the home fire lit. Gather the tender. Know that God wants you in a personal relationship with Him. Begin moving with those on fire for God. And when you do that, friction occurs. You ever notice that, right? You drive a motorcycle, a car, a bicycle, a treadmill. Not too often, right? But when it gets moving, things get hot. And everything moving has friction. And what we have to do to keep it moving is we have to change the oil every 5,000 miles. We have to lubricate the farm implements ever so often before the planting season to make sure the bearings don't freeze up. Why is that, that everything that's moving is always going to have some level of friction. Don't think for a moment that a church that's moving with God isn't going to have friction. But it's healthy friction. Here's what I know. Everything that's dead has stopped producing heat. Everything dead has stopped producing heat. A dead body, a dead vehicle in the junkyard, doesn't give off heat any longer. Anything that stops moving stops producing heat. There's a certain goodness in some friction, because with movement comes friction, and friction means it's warm. It's serving its purpose. But secondly, we need to provide the spark. The psalmist would say it this way in Psalm 104.4, He makes His messengers winds and His ministers a flaming fire. That's good, ain't it? Yeah. Y'all ain't nearly as excited as I am. Folks, that's us. That's you and I. That's who God has called to in partnership, who's given the covenant to. We have an opportunity and the ability to be His ministers, providing the flame and the fire through the spoken Word of God, through the written Word of God, through teaching the Word of God, through applying the Word of God. It all centers on the Word of God. And when we minister, when we serve, when we sell and share and go and tell, Folks, we're the ones providing the spark of what the Holy Spirit has already done inside of you and I. Remember that great scene at Pentecost? As they were speaking in tongues and all those that were native gathered around for that that time of worship that would have come from countries all over. The scripture tells us that something like flames was dancing around. The fire of God through His word as they were speaking And others heard them speak in their own native languages. The Bible actually lists out some of those languages. Beautiful. That when we speak the Word of God, we can provide the spark that ignites the fire. And what do we do after we've gathered our tender? We've provided the spark. We're teaching, preaching, proclaiming. Here's what we do. We fan the flame. Now, here's how I like to fan the flame. Some like to... eventually I just pass out, right? You know what I do, y'all? I grab the backpack blower. Yeah, You ever do that to a brush fire at home? Oh, it's awesome. Try it when you get home, gentlemen, right? Light the fire, get it going, and then crank up the old backpack blower and put that wind to it. And all of a sudden, and then you see the red lights, the fire department pulled up, and they're right behind you. Yeah. That's how I like to fan the flame, right? Get it going so hot that you could throw something so wet on it. In a moment, it's going to be sizzled, right? Folks, that's what we're called to do, fan the flame. When the flame starts going out, we've got to provide a conduit to get it hot again. How do we do that? You want to know one of the number? If your flame is it's kind of smoldering right now, here's the best advice I can give you. You need to join God on mission for doing His work. The number one best way to fan the flame in any believer's heart is to go on a mission trip. It's to take what you know about the gift you've received and go and give it to somebody else who doesn't know you, who cannot provide any benefit for you, but rather just an opportunity for God to bless you in faithfulness in fanning the flame. Here's what Jeremiah would say. Jeremiah 29. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name... There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Is your fire that hot? Or when you go somewhere and you're getting a six-inch fish sandwich from Subway, you want to start sharing the gospel about how you know a Savior that fed 5,000 people with a loaf of fish and bread? I mean, do we look for the gospel opportunities and are so excited that I can't not speak and proclaim the gospel? They put an image up for you. Let me share with you a little story. Preacher goes to a man's house who had been a member of the church for a long time. And a member just stopped coming to church. Just stopped showing up. Had other important things to do. Kind of took the perspective that, well, my job's keeping me away. My responsibilities are more important. And, well, I just have things to do. The Lord knows. So the preacher knocks on the man's door one day, and the man lets him in. The preacher doesn't say anything. The man doesn't say anything. They go and they sit by the fire. About 10, 15 minutes into it, they're just rocking away, still hadn't said nothing to each other. The preacher grabs the tongs to the fire and he reaches into the fire and he grabs a hot coal out of the fire and he takes the hot coal and he sets it away from the fire onto the hearth in the house and he gets back in his chair, he sits back down and over the next 15 or 20 minutes, he just sits there and he stares at that one little ember all by itself and as you can imagine, what's happening to that little ember all by itself, it's starting to slowly lose its heat and it's dying out in its flame. It's going from red hot to a little grayish red hot to a little darker to a little darker. Then all of a sudden it turns black again and the fire is gone. When the fire is gone, the preacher reached over with those tongs again and he picks up that little ember that's now completely cold and he puts it back into the fireplace. And before you know it, within a moment, that ember is glowing hot red again. Preacher looks at the man in the rocking chair, nods his head. The other man nods his head. Preacher gets up and he walks out. Hadn't said a word. Preacher tells a story that next Sunday that man was back in church. He said, Preacher, I got the entire message. You didn't have to say a word. Yeah, I'm a a member of the body of Christ, and yes, I'm a Christian. But I understand the best way to keep my coal hot is to keep it around the other flames that are burning around me. And when I'm there with the others that are hot, we're hot together. But when I withdraw by myself, my flame starts to go out. It's the best way we can get relit, plug into the body of Christ. Make what we do for Christ what it ought to be, which is pure and true devotion and spirit and truth, knowing that God has called us together. I'll leave you with a statement. There's even more danger. There's something even more dangerous than a cold castle. It's a cold heart towards God and the things of God. How do you rekindle it? Gather your tender, provide the spark, fan the flame, plug back into the body of Christ. And I promise you, what God is doing in you and through you has not gone. And he will reignite that fire in a way that, like Jeremiah, you will say, I cannot hold it in what God is doing. I must proclaim his truth to others. So let's look at proclamation for a moment. Turn with me in your Bible to verse 11 through 14 and we'll close with with this part. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this? You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male on his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. What is going on here? Here's the Lord proclaims. Number one, there is honor that is due him still to come. The honor due him still to come, we can read about it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Here's the, here's the honor that's still going to come to this king. Whether you accept it or not, whether you like it or not, here's the truth. Paul records it this way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, God the Father. You see, there is honor due him that is still to come. And here God is proclaiming that he will be. His name will be great among the nations. Incense will be offered to his name, a pure offering. But secondly, the curse to the unfaithful in verses 12 through 13. Notice some scoff at it, some doubt at it, and some are even fooled by it. Verses 12 through 13 says, But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. Now look in verse 13 for a minute. Over and over I hear comments that good meaning, I think, under-discipled believers in Christ make this statement. Well, God doesn't care what, what I wear. God doesn't care what I bring. God doesn't care whether I give a tenth or a tip. God knows my heart. You're right, He does. Absolutely. Look what the people were saying back to God when they were confronted by this very issue of what they were offering. But you say... What a weariness this is to me. And you snort at it. Now, I'm not going to snort that for y'all, okay? Like many that I've talked to and many I hear, and maybe even some that are watching and some that are sitting here that disagree with just the true reverence and holiness of what we bring to God and how important that is. You say, oh, God don't care about that. You better believe God cares about it. And here the people of Israel even scoffed at Malachi. My messenger that God sent. They're scoffing at Malachi, saying, Ah, this is just weariness. I don't need that. I'm going to go to a church that doesn't require all that stuff. Have at it. That's all I can tell you. Here's one thing I know. God will still hold you accountable, no matter where you hold membership, if you hold membership in His church. Some scoffed, some doubted, some are fooled by it. You bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick, And this you offer as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hand, the Lord says? You see, there's some follow-through that's required in verse 14 when we are His children. And I put all three of the things, the statements up there on the board real quick. I know we're running short on time. But here's the three follow-throughs. Let me share them with you real quick. If you're a member of the body of Christ, if you're unsaved, just turn it off. Because they don't apply to you. That's the reality of it, y'all. But if you're saved, every inch of it applies to you and me. Number one, serve the Lord faithfully. Now I can go into all kinds of etymology here and Greek out for a minute, but we'll just leave it as faithful. We know what faithful is, right? Serve the Lord faithfully. Make Him important. Fulfill your vow to the Lord. Oh, my goodness. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5, the great wisdom of Solomon says the following, When you vow a vow to God and you do do not delay in paying it, For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay it. Now let me translate that for you. When you say, I'll serve, be faithful in serving. When you say, Lord, I'll take that role. I'll minister here. I'll give this. I'll be a faithful member. Do it, is what God's saying. Fulfill what you've committed to, to the body of Christ. You know in chapter 2 of our Constitution and bylaws, if you're a church member at our church, and this goes for most churches, they have a membership covenant where there's certain things spelled out there for members that we're to do. When we say we will do something, Ecclesiastes reminds us, fulfill it, put simply. Because know that when we make a vow to the church, we're making a vow to God. You're not pledging your loyalty to me, folks. As your pastor, it's not me that you're pledging to. When you join this church, you're not joining because I'm the pastor. You're joining the body of Christ here. And we're making a vow to God to be faithful. You know how many folks it takes to do ministry on Sunday morning? More than we have serving. More than we have serving. Oh, but I'm a member of the church down the road. Show up and serve. That's all I can say. Psalm seventy six eleven. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him, who is to be feared. Follow through. Is what Malachi was telling the nation of Israel. Don't halfway do it. Our God deserves more. He is the King. And one day we will stand before him and proclaim just how much he was the Lord of our life. And the last point, verse 14b, he will receive the praise of all nations. The praise of all nations. That's the God we serve. That's the Lord we serve. That is the God we give to. That is the God we have vowed our allegiance and praise and worship to who is the God that is going to receive the praise of not just some nations. He's not going to be in favor with just a few people. He will receive the praise of all nations. Let me share with you my closing slide that was my introduction slide, if you will. Can we truly understand the concept behind the title? Nothing but the best is what God requires from us. Nothing but the best. Not a scratch and dent relationship, but nothing but the best. Why do I share that first? Because here's how we know God gave nothing but his best. It's called the cross of Calvary. You can look at the image. And what God gave to provide the salvation for all mankind was nothing but his best. Why should we give anything less as recipients of the very best God had to offer us, His Son, Jesus. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let me close this in a word of prayer. And as you're there, I just ask you, just be quiet, be still for a moment. How has God spoken to you through His Word? Again, Malachi, my messenger from the Lord. How has He spoken to your heart today? I hope you're encouraged, but I also know that there's some challenge in what was shared But folks, we're in a time that needs challenging. We've grown comfortable. We've grown cold. We've grown complacent as a church and as a people of God. How do you kindle your fire? Get it closer to those that are hot and burning for Jesus. Join the work that God is doing in this place. Around the world, we have the ability to reach people with the gospel on any day of the week Join Him where He's moving. And if you're here or if you're watching at home and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, but you want to, Jesus tells us that He came to seek and save that which was lost, and that's you. The very best God had, He gave for you to know Him as Lord and Savior. Paul tells us how. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that He was raised from the dead, then you will be saved for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you've heard the word of God proclaimed to you today and you you feel something in your heart that that's me I I want to accept Jesus, just know that is God calling you. He's calling you. Matter of fact, he's literally calling somebody right now into a relationship with his son. Would you pray that prayer and if you do, call us here at Eisman World. There's information at the end of the service that you can get in touch with one of us. Let us guide you and walk you through your first steps as a disciple of following Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the reminder and the instruction that Malachi has given. Father, we also know that after about 400 years, you went silent from the nation of Israel after Malachi's teaching. After his proclamation of your prophecy, it went quiet. Father, we pray now that that would not be the case in the life of your church. Lord, we would no longer be silent, we would no longer be quiet, but we would hear from you daily how you'd have us to go and what you'd have us to do. Father, help us to be feet on fire for Jesus. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, we pray that the Holy Spirit would draw them unto the conviction of salvation and accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. We thank you now, and Father, we pray as we move into this time of communion. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of what you have done for us on Calvary, Father, we pray that you will bless and honor this offering of our lives to you in remembrance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.